0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Diane Rehm. This program originally aired in 2021.
1: This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. For the past few years, former NPR host Diane Rehm has been advocating for medical aid in dying laws. Her recent book, When My Time Comes, and the forthcoming documentary of the same name, looks at medical aid in dying from a variety of perspectives. I started our conversation, which was recorded in front of a live virtual audience, by asking her to talk about her personal interest in medical aid and dying.
0: You know, Peter, I think it goes all the way back to the death of my mother. I was 19. She was 49. She died of liver cancer. She begged to die at the end. But, of course, nothing like medical aid in dying was available at that time, And in many states, it's not available now. In addition, my husband of fifty four years, John Ream, had Parkinson's disease, and He was in a nursing home for the last year and a half of his life. He decided that because he could no longer feed himself, he could no longer stand on his own, he could no longer bathe himself, he had lost all dignity and felt if he lived on, he would lose even more. So he told his doctor and his family that he was ready to die. So because at the time, and even now, the state of Maryland does not have a law allowing medical aid in dying, he had to do what is known as B said, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. He did that and it took 10 long days for him to die. And I'll tell you, Peter, it was so difficult for that man and obviously for all of us as his family to watch that process. So I do believe in medical aid in dying, and we can talk about what that entails.
1: Your, your skills as a journalist are, are just incredible on, on display in this book because you do state that you... Are positively inclined to medical aid in dying, but you are very even-handed in this in this book, and in the film. Uh, worth mentioning that uh, the film that comes with this actually came first
0: before the book. Exactly, I've worked on the film for the last three years, and about a year into the film, I realized that it needed a book to go right along with it
1: I wanted to ask you about your perspective on medical aid and dying laws when you started your work uh, interviewing people for the film and then of course the book and and how they evolved over over time I realize that's a broad question but is there a way to to summarize how your your views evolved as you spoke okay. to different people about it
0: I do so completely understand those who believe that God, should be the only decider. Their beliefs are deep and strongly felt and I totally support them. Then there are those who say, I want absolutely everything medical science can provide to keep me alive as long as possible. And truly, Peter, I can appreciate and understand that and support that. In the same way, I believe so strongly that for me, I want to die in my own bed with my family, my friends, with me and medical aid in dying will allow me to do that. It's not a simple given process. Two doctors must agree that one is within six months of death. And then there is a two week waiting period. And within some states, there are currently nine states plus DC, where I live, that do allow medical aid in dying. In some states, there is even a psychiatric interview with only the patient present to ensure that there is no coercion on the part of any relative any friend anyone the individual must be of sound mind and must be able to self-administer the medication in summary that's what medical aid in dying is all about and While I respect the choices of others, I hope that they will also respect my choice.
1: That's a word that came up in so many of these conversations. Choice. People were very concerned about having the choice, even if they chose not to use the medication that was prescribed to them. They really did value being able to choose.
0: It's so interesting that you mention, mention that because only two-thirds of those who actually receive the prescription end up using it. In other words, one-third of the people who apply for medical aid in dying are approved for medical aid in dying actually have the medication within their grasp actually use it. And I totally understand that. One of the people we interviewed was my high school sweetheart who had um, prostate cancer that had actually spread throughout his body and into his bones. We were in contact all through the years from high school on. I loved his wife. I still love his wife and am in contact with her. And in the end, she asked him because he lived in Colorado and was eligible to receive the medication, had the medication on hand, but decided not to use it. So it is all about choice.
1: I wanna ask you a little bit about some of the ways in which the laws that exist in the United States can be problematic or tricky for some people. One of the things is The six-month life expectancy, as we know, I mean, we've all heard stories of doctors saying you have X amount of time to live, and then that person exceeding that amount, sometimes by quite a lot. To what extent does that life expectancy part of these laws complicate the picture of medical aid in dying?
0: It really doesn't, because the individual patient would not go to the doctor and say, doctor, my suffering has become too much for me. Only God can know how long we have. So a doctor may say or agree that you have only six months to live. They told John Ream that. And indeed, they were, the doctor was right on. You cannot totally predict that, but you can be in the realm of possibility. But the fact of the matter is, if the patient is saying, doctor, my suffering is too much for me, and that person has a fatal illness like cancer, like Parkinson's, like ALS, there can be a range of time within which a doctor can estimate. It's never perfect. You're absolutely right.
1: What about the types of terminal illnesses that would lend themselves to medical aid in dying, because these laws often require self-administering. And there are some illnesses that at, at a certain point prevent you from uh, moving physically and enabling you to, to take the medication. Well, what about that?
0: You know, there are states that are wrestling with that very issue as we speak and you must under most laws be able to swallow the medication yourself and with a disease like ALS the muscles in the throat in the swallowing mechanism have begun to fail. And so there are some states that are looking at the possibility of raising an elbow to start the medication which can be administered anally and will accomplish the same And it's very sad to think that an individual with ALS who is going to die eventually and knows it but cannot swallow would have to continue if he or she does not want to continue with life to be forced to do that simply because he or she cannot swallow the medication. So there are efforts, and most especially, Peter, Canada is so far ahead of the United States in that regard.
1: This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. When we come back, more from former NPR host Diane Rehm on the medical aid in dying movement. This is NHPR. Welcome back. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. We're speaking today with former NPR host Diane Rehm about her book, When My Time Comes, a collection of conversations about the medical aid in dying movement. Before the break, we spoke about the limitations of the laws on the books in several states and in Washington, D.C. I asked Diane Rehm about how Canada has implemented medical aid in dying.
0: Canada is currently considering medical aid in dying for those who have Alzheimer's disease, for those who believe that they have no hope of recovery from ALS, from those who have such physical or mental problems that they no longer wish to live. Now, you're probably familiar with what's happened all over europe as well in the netherlands in switzerland um in belgium oh no I, I don't know if i am is, euthanasia
1: okay that's what you're referring to
0: euthanasia is allowed i don't think that's ever going to happen here in the united states but as we move forward, for those who wish it, who wish to have control over their own death.
1: There is some concern about uh, abuse of this of this law when it comes to people with disabilities uh, or people who are cognitively impaired somehow. Uh, in the course of your research, have you found examples of People who were disabled being taken advantage of with respect to this law?
0: Not, none. In the 24 years since the first law in Oregon came into existence, there has not been a single case of alleged abuse or force or any kind of taking advantage of an individual. Um, And I think that that is why states like Colorado, like Washington, like California um, have all moved forward, because this is something that people desire at the end of life. The purpose, the fundamental purpose of this film is to get people to talk about what they want at the end of life, to talk with their family members, to talk with their doctors, to talk with their friends, Peter, have you ever heard of death cafes?
1: I learned about them in your book. They sound fascinating. I'm glad.
0: I'm glad. People in neighborhoods, people in churches, people in various communities come together to talk about what they want at the end of life, to talk about the most taboo subject in this world for most of us, and that is to talk about death. So these death cafes, which is kind of an unfortunate name, they're simply neighborhood or church or friendly gatherings where people come together to share what it is they would like to have at the end of their lives. And for your neighbor to know that is so important. For example, if you have filled out every single form that says do not resuscitate and an ambulance is called to your home. Those medical workers are by law required to resuscitate. And if that's not what you want You don't want 911 called. And your neighbors and your friends and your relatives need to know that. It's a difficult series of conversations. It's not one.
1: In the absence of a death cafe, how would you recommend
0: making it easier to talk about death? If... I were younger and my parents were alive, I would probably begin the conversation, the first conversation with something like, you know, I've been with all this COVID stuff around and with all these viruses out there, I've been thinking about my own death and what I'd like to have. And I've been thinking I don't want to go to a hospital. I don't want to be hooked up to machines. And I'm wondering what it is or whether you've thought at all about that. Now, that could be the beginning. You might get brushed off. They might say, I don't want to talk about that. But it's an opening. And you must continue to pursue that. John Ream and I talked about death a lot because of my own mother and father's death at such young ages, because of his own mother and father's deaths in our lives. So my children know exactly how I feel about this, and I know they'll honor my wishes. And... Give me the control that I want at the end of life.
1: We had a question about um, consequences for people who, or medical professionals perhaps who don't honor uh, do not resuscitate orders uh, like the ones you mentioned. Uh, and that there's one instance of this described in your book where a woman is revived against her wishes. Are there consequences for medical professionals who go against those wishes?
0: Nope. And the fact of the matter is that you've got to be careful about the hospital you choose, the doctor you choose. Once I began working on this film and writing this book, I approached my own doctor at the time, and I asked her straight out, how do you feel about medical aid in dying? And she said, honestly, I'm not really in favor of it. I'm not really comfortable with it. And you know what I did, Peter? I found a new doctor because at my age, I need to know that I will be supported by my doctor. But, in direct answer to the question, there are no ways to say to a hospital, you did not honor my mother's wishes because the hospitals have their own codes of conduct. The Roman Catholic Church is the most outspoken and well-funded opponent to medical aid in dying. So, I would not turn to a Roman Catholic physician or one who does not believe in medical aid in dying.
1: I'd like to get a little deeper into uh, religious perspectives and other folks who uh, do not agree with medical aid in dying in a little bit. But I did want to bring in some questions from our audience. Certainly. Uh, uh, Sue has this question. Uh, She says, I assume that you agree that our life is our own, and if we cannot deal with our life anymore, we have a right to end it. My husband suffered a terrible depression and could not go on. He ended his life. I now believe that was his right. Do you?
0: You know, the difference between suicide and medical aid in dying is this. An individual who has a fatal illness has no choice. I'll give you an example. A 37-year-old woman in our film and in our book said to me, if I had my druthers, I'd live until I was 90. She was suffering from metastatic breast cancer, which had moved throughout her body. She said, but I know that's not going to be the case. I am going to die, and I don't want my 12-year-old son to see me suffer. Your questioner's relative had a person who had severe depression. He had a choice to live or to die, and he made a choice. Suicide is very different from medical aid in dying.
1: With respect to suicide and not medical aid in dying, um, well, this book talks a lot about the patient being able to define the extent to which they are suffering and to describe that suffering in their own terms and to describe what is harm, not letting the doctor, for example, describe what is harm and not letting the doctor decide what is best. the question Sue seems to be asking is, "Well, her husband made a decision that what was best for him is to to die." I think she's asking, "Did he have a right to make that choice, or maybe was it a moral choice for him to to do what he did?"
0: You know, I can't really answer that because suicide is such a very, very different phen- a phenomenon from medical aid in dying. I cannot measure someone's internal suffering. I cannot know what that person's suffering was that forced him to say, life is not worth living. But I can say about the woman to whom I talked, that she knew that death was imminent, that she was going to suffer and her children were going to see her suffer. And she did not want that. That's very different from suicide. She wanted control over the end of her life, knowing that the end of her life was near. And, you know, it's interesting, in the end, she was one of the people who did not take the medication and simply died in hospice. What is the role of hospice in medical aid and dying? It's interesting. Hospice is wonderful. Palliative care is something different. Palliative care is simply to keep that person comfortable for as long as possible. Hospice care also enables that individual to be comfortable. But hospice is changing and hospice nurses to some extent in states where medical aid in dying is legal is also now allowed to help ease people into their deaths. It's the use of morphine. You know, for years, doctors have done this. For centuries, doctors have done this, have, have, have given people in, more in morphine than was needed in order to help a suffering patient die. But it was all done under the table. And now, We are recognizing that patients should have that right to choose. And that's what medical aid in dying is all about, choice.
1: I'm Peter Biello, and we're speaking with Diane Rehm about the medical aid in dying movement. She's the author of the book When My Time Comes, a collection of interviews with both advocates and skeptics. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. More after a break. This is NHPR. This is Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Peter Biello. We're speaking with Diane Rehm, former host of The Diane Rehm Show and author of the book When My Time Comes, Conversations on the Medical Aid in Dying Movement. Most states, including New Hampshire, do not have medical aid in dying laws, and that is just one of a few access equity questions. I asked Diane Rehm about medical aid in dying and racial equity.
0: Relating to race, and one of the most wonderful people I talked with—they were all wonderful—but he is an A.M.E. American Meth—sorry, African Methodist Episcopal pastor here in Washington, and his African-American congregation does not subscribe to the idea of medical aid in dying because the African-American population in this country, people of color have not been treated equitably by the medical profession. If you think back just to what's happened to Blacks in this country, if you think of how unfairly people of color have been treated by the medical profession and how uneven the medical provisions are to people of color in this country. You understand why there is so little trust. And the Reverend Lamar said to me, Diane, if you can guarantee me that someday, It will be fair on an equal plane for blacks, whites and all people of color. Then I will subscribe to the idea of medical aid in dying. But just think of those Tuskegee experiments. I won't forget that and neither will they. And that mistrust lingers. Look at what's happened with the COVID vaccine and the unfair distribution. And yet people of color have been those most affected by the COVID virus. So it's totally understandable Mm -hmm. that such disparity in belief in medical aid in dying exists because of the disparity in medical care.
1: And what about cost? Is uh cost an issue as well for the perhaps the drugs that, that it takes to participate in medical aid and dying?
0: Cost has come down. It after One of the least expensive drugs was taken from about, you know, two cents a pill up to a hundred dollars a pill and finally taken off the market. Now you have drugs that are. Put together by compound pharmacies only and doctors must go to those compound pharmacists to prepare the liquid that is then given to the patient after a waiting period, Peter, of two weeks when the patient has been determined by two doctors and perhaps a psychiatrist to be totally of sound mind, totally making his or her own decision, and within six months of death.
1: I wanted to bring in another listener question. Nell asks about euthanasia, and she says, why do you feel that the U.S. will not accept euthanasia as a choice
0: in dying? I think that right now, and who knows, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, right now, the idea of euthanasia, while it is accepted in Switzerland, Belgium, uh, other parts of Europe, and You know, if it were accepted here when my time comes, I would be in favor of it for myself. But I don't think it's going to be here for a long, long time. Just think, Peter, it's been 24 years since Oregon first enacted the first law in this country. It then took 10 more years until the state of Washington enacted the second law Mm -hmm. allowing medical aid in dying. And now, as I've said, we have nine states plus D.C., There are currently 20 states considering medical aid in dying, so the pace may pick up, but I do not believe euthanasia will be here, certainly not in my lifetime, maybe not even in your lifetime, because euthanasia perhaps brings to mind too much of the Holocaust, too much of the idea of taking people's lives without their permission.
1: You mentioned that the Catholic Church was the the most well-funded organization lobbying against medical aid in dying laws throughout the country. You spoke with uh, Father John Toohey uh, uh, of Massachusetts about his views. He's yes. against medical aid in dying. Yes. Uh, how would you describe his views? Uh, they There's the argument about God choosing the end of life, but it, it, his arguments went deeper than that.
0: His arguments went to biblical references. His arguments went to the Holy Spirit being in each of us and that there should not be an opportunity to think of life as anything but precious, no matter in what state or stage. And that, as you say, God should be the only decider. I respect that. And I respect those who believe that. And if I believed that as well, I would support that. I believe that someday I'm going to see my husband Again. In other words, I'm an active, believing Episcopalian. I believe in God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I remember my husband's words when he made his decision to stop drinking water and eating and taking medications. He said, I have begun the journey. I think there is a journey and I hope I will see him in that next journey.
1: One of the things Father uh, John Tuohy had said And I'll have to paraphrase here, I don't have his exact quote, but he was concerned about what medical aid in dying said about society's value of someone's life once they reach a certain stage in their illness. What do you think he meant by that? And and how would you describe the value of a person's life in those few days?
0: I think he was referring to the idea that somehow medical aid in dying and the choice to end one's own suffering could somehow change society, could change the value we place on an individual's life. And I totally understand his point. However, I do believe that one cannot judge another's suffering. One cannot judge another's desire to carry on in the face of that suffering. And therefore, I do believe that God would not wish to have us suffer in that way. And therefore, my interpretation would be different from his interpretation. But we are both believers. We are both believers that there is a God, and that he or she is watching over us and would not wish to have a supper.
1: And he did mention that there is still mercy from the church for for Catholics who participate in medical aid in dying.
0: Well, he did say, and I was very upset with this, I must confess he said that those who participate in medical aid in dying will not be given last rites by the church. But on the other hand, those who decline further medical treatment will be given last rites. So there's the difference between passive and active behavior. And he made that very distinction.
1: We got this question from an audience member. Do you think we will ever get to a point where folks can stipulate end of life wishes, including medical aid and dying,
0: before they ever become ill? I already have. I have gone so far, and you will read about this in my book. You will see this in the film I recorded with my grandson on his cell phone while the videographer for the film was using his camera to record both of us. I said, this is what I want. And I want your mother, my daughter, your uncle, my son, all of our family to know exactly what I want. And I want this on your cell phone. So, everybody understands. And using that recording, I think, will be very helpful. I'm very fortunate. I'm 84 years old. I'm still in good health. I have no health conditions. But I want to be prepared. And Whether you're 80 or whether you're 40, it's time to think about what it is you want. Who knows?
1: With respect to the laws that uh, limit the kinds of illnesses that would allow you to avail yourself of medical aid in dying, you might have to, I don't know, you know better than I do perhaps, uh, specify in any advanced directives, if I get X illness, do why? If I debt Z illness, do A. Is that not
0: what happens? Nope. I am saying, in a very broad statement, if I am no longer able to care for myself and be of service to society mentally or physically. I want you to understand that I do not want to carry on. I do not want to have any extraneous measures taken to keep me alive. If, and this goes beyond any laws that are currently available anywhere, I will say this to you, and I will say this publicly, that should I begin to demonstrate signs of Alzheimer's, I will ask my family to let me know that they are seeing this. And I have asked them to pledge to me that they are seeing this. And if I am feeling this, I will not live through that, Peter. I do not wish to live through that. I have seen too many situations where that's the case. And it's so difficult. Canada is now considering allowing those with Alzheimer's or the beginnings thereof to have medical aid in dying, if they choose. Well, Diane,
1: I'd love to close by asking you uh, the question that you asked so many of your interviewees (laughs) in this book. I believe we have a good idea, but I'd love to hear from you specifically. What in your mind, makes a good death?
0: Yes, you're right, Peter. That is the question we asked everyone. And for me, a good death would be to be right here in my condominium with my family, my husband my children, my grandchildren, my dearest friends. Talking about our lives, talking about the good times we've had together, talking about the lives we've shared, and then finally going into my own bedroom, into my own bed with my husband, my children, and my grandchildren, and saying goodbye, that, for me, would be a good death.
1: Well, Diane Reem, thank you so much for your time and for the gift of this book and the forthcoming film. We really
0: appreciate it. Peter, I want to thank you so much for having me.
1: that's it for this edition of writers on a new england stage a co-production of the music hall in portsmouth and nhpr the music hall's executive director is tina Sautel. nhpr's president is jim Schachter. the music hall director of communications and community engagement is monty bohannon nhpr's producer of writers on a new england stage is sarah plort nhpr's director of communications and marketing is patricia mclaughlin itaj Ismailova is nhpr's marketing and communications coordinator and the music hall literary producer is Brittany wasson music in this broadcast by Little Glass Men. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for joining us for Writers on a New England Stage.